The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. <gasps> My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. And welcome to the final episode. This wasn't going to be a permanent project. Uh, we uh, built this, so it was temporary. Yeah, when we came up with the idea for Star Wars Episode Zero, which if this is your first episode... Uh, sorry, there's a whole backlog. This is the 20th episode, I think. Of uh, We knew that we wanted to discuss the prehistory of Star Wars, the various films from a wide variety of genres, countries, eras that had a profound impact on the most popular movie franchise in the world. Um, we knew that, yeah, there's a ton, but there's going to be so much overlap and eventually we just sort of hit critical mass and we'd have talked about pretty much all the movies that we needed to talk about. And yeah, we missed a few, but we feel like we've pretty much wrapped it up and there's more supplemental reading if you want to do it and you're more than welcome to. Uh, but we figured, yeah, this has a, this had an end date and we knew pretty early on that we wanted to end it with a film that I don't think anybody expected would have a profound impact on Star Wars. And that is Kevin Smith's micro-budget indie comedy, Clerks. Salsa Shark. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Throughout history, they have been a part of our American life. Men and women who have made it their mission to serve their fellow man. They've worked hard enough. Isn't it time? They had their own movie. Clerks. This job would be great if it wasn't for the customers. I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. I could do without the people in the video store. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's no ice? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. <laughs> Uh, Clerks hit theaters in 1994. Uh, Kevin Smith made it when he was 23 years old. He made it for $275,000. And that's actually kind of misleading because, like, principal photography was way less than that. Mm -hmm. And I think I think a lot of that ended up, like, going to, like, the soundtrack, like, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. like, licensed Nerf Herder songs and stuff. Yeah. Um, the guy from Nerth Herder, incidentally, uh, went on to be a successful children's musician who I know about because I have a young child. Oh, Look up you Perry Grip at some point. He has songs about nachos and chimichangas. Uh, but yeah, uh, Clerks uh, caused quite a stir when it first came out in 1994. It, it was, was crit critically lauded. It made a. It, it never played on more than 50 screens and still somehow racked up three million, which was astronomical given its budget. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, I think until. The Blair Witch Project came out. It was like the most financially successful indie film in relation to its budget that had been made since, um, I don't know, what was I, I, Halloween, I think. Since Halloween, yeah, probably Halloween. Halloween, Halloween cost like, like 100000 or something like mm. that. It made like over $100 million, and that was huge. Mm. Um, Clerks was a, the original production budget was less than $30,000. Kevin Smith sold his comic book collection, maxed out some credit cards, took insurance money from a car that got wrecked, and just threw it all into making a movie set at the convenience store where he worked, uh, and wrote the hell out of it, cast people he knew, and wrote about what he knew. He knew about working at convenience stores in a video store right next door, and that's a gamble. That's a lot of yeah. money. That's and, a lot uh, of time. And again, he's just some guy. He's, he's just, not uh, he's, just he's, some some he guy in New Jersey. People. He's not like you know the son of anyone famous or anything. He's got ins. He just really felt passionate about it. Took a risk. And honestly, look at him now. Clerks was a huge hit at Sundance. 
made a lot of money. It created a whole career of him making these ribald comedies full of witty characters, many of them immature men, uh, and eventually led to him writing comic books, creating a podcasting empire, uh, getting his own comic book store, hosting a variety of television shows, directing episodes of superhero shows, and indeed having an interesting connection to Star Wars. He's, he's even in, uh, he's in Daredevil. The, he mo- is. the movie Daredevil. He plays a coroner. Yeah. He gets, yeah. he gets to play the wisecracking pathologist, which yeah. I appreciate. And the director of Daredevil, before he made Daredevil, was in Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back as the director of Daredevil. Isn't that cute? It's so cute. <laughs> Kevin Smith, uh, it's not that he wasn't above those jokes, it's that he lived for them. He, yeah. he looked forward to those sorts of things. But yeah, uh, he was inspired very deeply by uh, Slacker, the Richard Linklater film, which mm-hmm. came out four years previous. And... Uh, it sort of when he saw that movie, it occurred to him that he can actually just make a movie about people like him who are just having conver- the kind of conversations that he and his buddies have. Yeah, and, and if you've ever worked retail, <clears throat> especially retail where there's a lot of downtime, there's a lot of like high speed retail. Like if you're working like McDonald's or something like that, where you don't have a lot of time to just sort of sit back and just wait for the next customer to show up, or mm-hmm. what you're doing doesn't require a lot of mental energy because you're just shelving. Um, I've worked a lot of retail like that. I've worked oh, yeah. at various video stores, bookstores, and you develop a rapport with your coworkers, sometimes positive, sometimes not. And after a while, you just start shooting the shit and having odd conversations just to fill the time. Yeah, and that's a huge yeah. part of what Clerks is. Uh, Kevin Smith uh, f- famously gave some screenwriting advice. He said, write the screenplay that you want to see. Which he, is really good advice, it's, actually. Yeah, like, don't don't write something that you think will sell. Don't write what's hot right now. Don't write what you think you're good at. Write the movie you think you, you want to see because chances are somebody else also wants to see that. Exactly. Um, he always wanted to see a movie where people talk the way he and his buddies talk, so he just wrote that screenplay and he made that movie. And along uh, with, this, I think, Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. and a few other, uh, and Bridget Linklater among them, I think... Kevin Smith helped change the way characters talk in movies. Yeah, there was a, a lot more uh, wit. There was a lot more banter. Mm-hmm. There was a lot There's... more association to popular culture, which yeah. for a long time was considered actually kind of gauche to have mm. characters in your movies talk at length about, about other movies. movies yeah. That was not something that was typically done. And in real life, we do it all the time. Yeah. So when it was actually the... perfectly natural to have characters in Pulp Fiction and Clerks do that. But it seemed kind of revolutionary to have that kind of meta level in a movie. Yeah, and that, so the nineties between, between scream Pulp Fiction and clerks and the works mm-hmm. of Joss Whedon, I think it all just kind of exploded. And now this is the world in which we live in. Yeah. 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 Um, and in fact, it even became insufferable after a while. Yeah. I remember like in, in some like lesser horror films that came like a decade later about, uh, you know, oh, this is just like a scenario in a scary movie. Yeah, that that, that joke was cute a decade ago. You have anything to say about it? No. no I'm just re- I just recognize it. Okay, then you're not uh, doing Scream. Scream at something to say. <laughs> uh, but... Clerks also really exemplified, uh, the, uh, and Kevin Smith wouldn't take credit for this. He, he staunchly refuses to take credit for this, but in many ways it is sort of the voice of Generation X. Mm-hmm. Generation X uh, was, you know, people born in like the late 60s to, to late 70s who were raised on the previous generation's popular culture, who didn't really have a Vietnam War to protest. They were just sort yeah. of... Fight Club talked about this yeah. extensively. As though, as though having a Vietnam War... As though not having a Vietnam War was a tragedy. But I well, feel but like what the they, idea, they didn't have was a defining exactly. incident. The idea was there There wasn't some sort of cultural moment to unify the entire generation under one banner. Mm-hmm. As such, they were seen as kind of aimless, and all they really had to sort of unify them was popular culture, was television. Yeah. Things that uh, ordinarily would be kind of dismissed in previous generations as, like, frivolous or distractions. Yeah. Because there are more important things. Or at most, just the art of the time. Mm. Whereas, yeah, there was, you know, the Vietnam War, there was World War II, the Great Depression, and more recent times we had uh, Mm. 9-11. We have, right now, we're living through one of those giant generational flashpoints where, regardless of what happens or how long it takes to come back to... Any sort of new paradigm uh, in the decades and generations that follow, we will look back at this as, yeah, we all lived through that. That was a crazy time. My son is going to describe himself as a COVID kid when he gets to be older. Um, My son, who just turned five and a half. Uh, So uh, there was a lot of, and this, you'll see a lot of writing about this, a lot of disaffection, a lot of disillusionment. Mm. Uh, These 
people who were college educated and who knew a lot about the world and were put out into the workforce with no actual skills, Mm -hmm. with no trade, uh, with nothing to really guide them toward uh, like an upward uh, like uh, uh, financial trajectory. Yeah. And they were basically the, just thrown into they were they weren't going to be like and some of them were but like as whole they weren't going to be like these like new paragons of capitalism and entrepreneurs there a lot of them were just thrown into the system to be cogs in it yeah and, and, and yet, they were smart enough to realize that yeah so as such you get movies like Clerks uh, I think. Um, uh, Swingers is also a big part of this. Uh, Robert, extent, yeah. Robert Byron Burnett's uh, Free Enterprise is a big part of this. Mm-hmm. The people about that age who are trying, who are coming to terms with the fact that they are kind of arrested in adolescence. Mm-hmm. All they have to discuss is popular culture, and they're smart enough to know better. I think what I think what's interesting though, I think what sets Clerks apart, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about the Star Wars connection, obviously, but I want to talk about Clerks because I think it's a movie people take for granted, and rewatching it now is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. The other films you're describing, films like Free Enterprise, Swingers, very likable movies. Mm. Very entertaining movies. I like both of those movies. But those are more movies about relationships and romance and and they're about popular culture, particularly in the case of Free Enterprise. Mm. Clerks is a very angry film about... Well, Arrested Development, yes, but also about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Clerks, Clerks is, I mean, it's about, it's called Clerks. They're actually like, this is about people who do this job and how soul crushing this job is and how. And how they get no respect and no yeah. credit for what they do. And, no. they and also, and, but and they're also, also not moved to do much. But also, yeah. And also, like, at the same time, like, it, it's easy when you're young and you're in that position where you're doing those retail jobs, or you have those retail jobs to quote unquote look forward to, <laughs> uh, it's easy to just sympathize with the plight of Dante and Randall, the film's two heroes, and just sort of and 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 just sort of look upon them as um, avatars. But I actually think that Smith was rather smart about how Dante and Randall are assholes. Yeah, they're not kind people. They're, they're not. They're, they're, they're funny. selfish. They're funny and they're charming and they're yeah. smart. But yeah, they are. They yeah. they do. They make nothing but bad decisions. Mm-hmm. They're selfish. Mm-hmm. They're mean. They're often sexist. Uh, there's a bit of homophobia in here, mostly from Jay, played by Jason Mewes, which mm-hmm. is off putting, but an accurate depiction of that kind of uh, yeah. uh, personality. I, I, um, I, I, I was alive in 1994. That is that. that, that was a lot our, of those, those guys. Our attitudes. There's yeah. a lot of those guys. Um. But uh, he also knows that what what are we what are we supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Like they're they're struggling to come up with an identity, and the only identity that they are being given there's a big conversation about does your title dictate your behavior? Yeah, we are clerks. Ergo, should we not be good clerks? And but that was Dante's argument. That was Dante's yeah. argument, and Randall argues that no, we are individuals who happen to be doing a job. We cannot let this job define us. And and he, and. But, and, uh, Jeff Halloran, Randall. Jeff Halloran, Randall uh, has uh, he observes that they're bad clerks. Mm-hmm. On top of all that, so it's like not only does uh, title not dictate behavior, but we can do whatever we want in this position. It doesn't really matter what we are. We're just shitty clerks. Yeah, that's all we are. That's our. If you think that's our identity, then this is sad because we're not good at what we do. And it really ties into what is probably the most famous exchange mm-hmm. in. Clerks, maybe one of the most famously written scenes in almost any movie of the 1990s. I mean, I'm thinking, like, what are some of the iconic movie scenes of the 1990s? It's like the opening of Scream. There's the Royale with Cheese scene in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's the Star Wars scene. And there are others as well, but there are certain <laughs> scenes that just really just stick out. And this is one of them, where... A uh, 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 Randall is at the video store and he's he, watching he, Return of the Jedi. He he works at the video store next door. Yeah, this little, really crappy little rinky dink video yeah. store. And if, in case you need a baseline, here's here's the plot of the movie. Uh, Dante, uh, played by Brian O'Halloran, works at a convenience store. He was supposed to have the day off. He's called in on his day off. He has the shittiest day imaginable. Mm. Right next door to the convenience store is a video store where Randall works. Randall is supposed to work today and he's hardly doing a damn thing. He doesn't give a shit. He just wants to hang out with his friend Dante. Yeah, he leaves the store frequently just to go hang out at the convenience store. He insults customers. He he says like 
porno titles in front of children. He's terrible. He's terrible. terrible. He's, he's really, really terrible. And that's kind of it. And we'll t- maybe we'll talk a little bit about the plot later, but really it's supposed to be very slice of life. Hmm. Uh, Randall was watching Return of the Jedi over at the video store, and he, suddenly he has an epiphany, and he must go next door to speak of this to Dante. And by the way, this whole scene is basically just Twitter 20 years too early. Um <laughs> He goes to Dante and he says, I was just watching Return of the Jedi and something really kind of freaked me out. You know how at the end of Return of the Jedi, they blow up the second Death Star, but the second Death Star was unfinished? Like the first one was fully operational. It was full of bad guys. Yeah. So it was full of bad guys. So when the rebels blew it up, everyone who died was on was on the Imperial side. It is, a, it is an incident of war and it's all fair game. But because the second Death Star wasn't fully operational yet, because it was still being produced, that means that it, the people who were making it would still have been on there. They would, and it would be full of independent contractors who are innocent <laughs> victims of a war they had nothing to do with. And he feels really bad for those independent contractors, at which point an actual independent contractor who was working at the store shows up and says, actually, personal politics plays a huge part in independent contracting. I have actually turned down jobs from people who I didn't like, didn't trust or thought were dangerous because I knew that I would be putting myself in danger or I would be associated with them. And it would be a bad thing. And, it, and the, he ends the scene with a comic line, like a true contractor thinks with his heart, not with his wallet. Yeah. yeah. So he ultimately argues that even if there were independent contractors on the Death Star yeah. in Return of the Jedi, they knew what they were getting into. Or as adults who are capable of making their own decisions, they, they should have known. And, yeah. and they are responsible for their own fate. And that's a fascinating scene on a couple of levels. One, because it really keys into the overall issue that Dante and Randall are involved in. They are cogs in a machine, but do they not have any individual free will? They do, but they are choosing to give it up for a capitalist system that hates them mm. and does not respect them almost and has no place for them. They're almost unwittingly giving it up. They're yeah, because they're, they're just dumb making, kids. Yeah. They're just dumb kids. They're in their early 20s. Mm. They don't know what they're doing. These are just jobs to them. These aren't careers, or at least we find out in Clerks 2 that they were, but like that wasn't the idea. Um and yeah, Clerk, but, Clerks 2 is really fascinating. It's 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 an interesting sequel, but like again, in Clerks 1, they're trying they're struggling with their identity within a system and they're in various scenes like the one in which uh, Randall decides to spit, spit water on a customer just to show that he doesn't have to fulfill his role as a clerk, but he's still choosing to be a clerk. Does he not bear the responsibility for that? At the beginning of the movie, uh someone comes into the store and actually starts inciting a riot against Dante for selling cigarettes because that means that just because he's selling them, he is part of the capitalist enterprise Mm -hmm. of selling cigarettes, which are incredibly bad for you. Whether or not they're the thing that kill you, they deteriorate your health. And as a result, does he not bear some responsibility from that? And it's the exact same conversation held multiple different ways. And uh, indeed, that turns out to be a double back because the guy inciting the riot turned out he was also part of the industrial cog. Yeah. Because he was there to turn people off to cigarettes so they would turn to the gum that he worked for, the gum company that he worked for. So it's actually all of these scenes that seem really, really cute in a vacuum. You realize that whether Kevin Smith was fully conscious of it or not, he's rattling around these ideas, these existentialist Mm. ideas of young people who are struggling with the idea of working for a living and whether or not that affects their identity, whether or not that affects their behavior and whether or not that affects their ethics and morality, which I think is really, really fascinating. You you, you can be sure. And this, this was kind of conversation you have when you're in your early twenties and stuck in sort of a a clerk milieu. I worked in movie theaters from mm -hmm. around that same time. And those were the kinds of conversations we have. Like what, what kind of, place do we have in the film industry really yeah and we we chose to think of ourselves as the final line of defense <laughs> it's like a, who who has final cut on the movie is it the director is it the producer it's the projectionist they have true. final cut on the movie all it's right true, yeah. it's like the, we're gonna i'm gonna figure out what what kind of content can go into my movie i'm gonna send it to the mpaa what kind of rating is it gonna get oh no and what kind of theaters are gonna serve it you know who enforces that rule the teenager who tears, tears your ticket Mm-hmm. They're the only ones standing between <laughs> <laughs> you and the movie. you and that big system that's trying yeah. to, to protectionist decides place, how yeah. bright the bulb is going to be exactly, that day. Exactly. Yeah. So we we, we, decided... we went to see we went to see Dunkirk 
Dunkirk, which is this huge, like, 70... We went to a yeah. theater that was showing it at, like, 70 millimeters. Yeah, we, we deliberately saw it out a 70 yeah. projector. Because we knew it was supposed to be, like, this incredible spectacle. You know, mm. Christopher Nolan has our best interests at heart. So we thought. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> it was out of focus. <laughs> it was out of focus! It was totally taken out of yeah. his hands! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so, amazing! So, yeah, when, when you work in a movie theater, you begin to see yourself as the ultimate arbiter as, of film. That's, That's like... You know, some people come by, they, they don't even know the title of the film. One, yeah. one, can one ticket to Mel Gibson, please? Yeah, I've Here's heard your people... ticket that, to Mel Gibson. Yeah, I've heard people buy tickets that mm. way. Yeah, I remember when the movie Payback was about to come out. Somebody walked up to me and pointed to the poster and said, when is Mel Gibson coming out? And I very quickly, <laughs> in a very smart alecky kind of way, said, well, that's kind of up to him, isn't it? <laughs> Did they get it? No, not for a second. They just <laughs> gave me a nasty look and walked on. Um, but yeah, when you're when you're stuck... As in your early 20s. I just had a flashback. I remembered I was working at a movie theater when the movie uh, The Motorcycle Diaries came out. Okay. Um, 2002. Bi- biopic of the life of young Che Guevara. Hmm. And uh, someone walked up, and we had a big poster for it. And uh, someone walked up to the box office and said, Do you know that movie is about communists? <laughs> yes, it's about Che Guevara. And I was like, Yeah, I think hmm. they figured that out. And they're like, Ugh. And then they walked away in disgust. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Hope, hope they didn't accidentally stumble into the five-hour Che biopic that Soderbergh made. Right. Um, uh, but, but in any case. Yeah, the, the, the whole idea is that you, you do have, when you're working your first retail job, you're under stress, you want to perform well, but you're also in the midst of this deep, usually quarter-life existential crisis. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what my career has led me to. This is what my life has yeah, led me my, to. My, my life has it? led me to this. So, uh, Clerk is very much about the quarter-life crisis. It was mm-hmm. made by somebody in their early 20s who was prob- you know, probably having those very conversations and mm-hmm. just put them to page. Uh, and all he had as sort of his respite was a lot of the stuff he watched as, ki- as a kid, yeah, which is Star Wars. That and, was the culture that he mm-hmm. had to go off of. That was the point of reference that he mm-hmm. had. So he, it's really fascinating that Star Wars, which, again, we just talked about Joseph Campbell last week, but putting that aside, most people still looked at it as broad entertainment. Mm. Here are a couple of people who look at Star Wars and actually extrapolate life lessons from it. Dante says that Empire Strikes Back was the best Star Wars movie at the time. I'm curious if he still thinks that. Um, because it had a downbeat ending. You know, mm-hmm. Han Solo's frozen in carbonite, and taken and, away by Boba Fett. Luke gets his it. hand cut off, finds out Vader is father. Mm-hmm. He sees that pessimism as something representative of his life. Whereas Randall mm-hmm. keeps focusing on the plight of the everyman or the every person within Star Wars and actually seeing within mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi, a movie which sometimes isn't terribly well thought out uh, and actually sees within it versions of himself versions of people who are trapped in ethical conundrums that have nothing to do with shutting off a shield generator what i find fascinating is the 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 way they talk about star wars you can see that the conversation about star wars has changed a lot Mm -hmm. Uh, it is now widely accepted that the empire strikes back is the best of the star wars movies just hands down bar none uh the conversation, the Star Wars conversation in Clerks begins with uh, Randall asking Dante, which is your favorite, Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi? And Ran- and Dante walks by and says, Empire. And Randall says, Blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back was, long, for a long time, considered the best one. It's bigger, had more amazing special mm. effects. The big fight between uh, Luke and Vader is mm. epic. I still think that's an amazing bit. Um, it was huge. Yeah. It yeah. was really huge. So there has been since a kind of critical reckoning with, mm. with Star Wars. But, but in any uh, case, it, yeah, Star so Wars is we their get filter. To, we get to see Star Wars as their filter. And even though it seems kind of quaint now, it really pushed a ship out unwittingly mm-hmm. about how an entire generation was going to start talking about Star Wars. Yeah. And how they were going to... And you can look at like early YouTube videos of just nerdy white guys, just like the guys in Clerks, mm-hmm. making these long analytical videos yeah. about why why Star Wars works the way it does. Uh, Kevin Smith, ultimately... I mean, I think Clerks is a fascinating movie. There's parts of it that are cringeworthy today. The mm-hmm. female characters aren't treated very, very well. Main characters are assholes. The reliance on crude humor is sometimes a little pathetic, but he's young and he's but, trying to make but it. But so, sometimes it's very funny. And sometimes it's yeah. funny. Sometimes it's very, very funny. Yeah. Sometimes it's merely crude. Uh, and it, it's it's very, very fascinating. And I think it's as, it's as honest as I think Kevin Smith was willing to be at the time. 
Um, I think it's a good movie, but it's probably a movie that could only be made at that time. Yeah. Um, but it, although it is a movie that is full of existentialist uh, philosophical uh, uh, ennui, I mean, the mm-hmm. main character's name is Dante. Is he in hell or purgatory? <laughs> Who can say? Um, but uh, the 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 thing that I think ultimately Kevin Smith made his career on, whether or not he fully intended to, is that Star Wars scene. He ended up turning discussion about Star Wars into an art form. Mm. And he would repeat that motif throughout many of his movies. Most of his movies have at least some Star Wars reference, in some cases a really thoughtful one. I really like the speech about um, in Chasing Amy about uh, how James Earl, it's it, how much of a betrayal it could be to see James Earl Jones after three movies take off his helmet and reveal himself to be a white guy. Mm. Like, that's kind of fucked up if you think about it when it comes to representation. Um, but uh, he turned talking about Star Wars into an art form and other people were following suit. Yeah, Not just talking about popular culture, but specifically talking about Star Wars. Specifically, overanalyzing Star Wars. You, you you once put it very well, uh, just on Twitter once a while mm-hmm. back. How in Clerks, uh, the joke is that they're overthinking Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like you're not supposed to think about the independent contractors. You're supposed to be wrapped up in the drama of the movie. Stopping and th- overthinking it like that is clearly a sign that you've watched the movie too many times. Yeah, that's where the comedy comes from. That's why it's a funny scene, in addition to being just a, a good dialogue scene. Now that's a career. Yeah. Now it's just a job you apply for. Yeah. And here, I would love to see Kevin Smith make another movie about a 20-something, just coming out of college, a journalism student mm. who really wants to break in and is forced to write articles overthinking Star Wars against their will. That's actually quite fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> to like kind, of, kind of continue the, the through line that he began. I think it's really interesting. But mm. like, again, so what Clerks did... Mm was change the conversation about Star Wars and change the way the conversation about Star Wars would be viewed, depicted, and monetized. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, overthinking Star Wars, really getting into nuts and bolts of Star Wars, and, and again, Star Wars was still a cottage industry, and it was, people were like making fan films, and there were action Although figures this, and books, and keep in all mind, these things uh, were out there. This film came out in 1994, however. Now, keep in mind... Uh, the last Star Wars uh, film proper probably, was over a decade old. Yeah, like the the last theatrical release in America was The Return of the Jedi, and then there were two Ewok films after that that mm-hmm. were released over, theatrically overseas. Eighty five might have been the last time you would have seen Star Wars on a on the big screen anywhere. And uh, yeah. I think there might have been a re release here and there, a yeah, special sure there a, special screening sure at Cinema Tag. But or what is that? But Star Wars was a done franchise. That's true. It, it was it was seen as kind of moribund, uh, and yeah. it wouldn't be until I think it was ninety seven that they did the special editions. Mm. Where they re-released the same films, but with like remixed special effects, with a few new and, surprises. A few new surprises, and we're gonna put in some digital digital shit that nobody asked for. Yeah. Why did we do that? Does that were we interested in re-exploring this property, or did it have something to do with the fact that uh, George Lucas had an ex-wife that he wanted to bar out of the original version's rights? Could have something to do with that, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Allegedly, allegedly. That's a lot of people have said. The whisper that the, heard most often. The, the whisper heard most often was that George Lucas came out with Star Wars the Special Edition and made that his baby because mm. an ex wife had rights to the original version and yeah. just wanted to lock her out. Um, again, allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, but yeah, when they're having this conversation, uh, Star Wars was seen as a little something with a little bit more outsider appeal. Yeah. They were huge hits, of course. Yeah. Everybody had seen them, everybody had known them, but. They were a decade old. Yeah. They weren't so worth talking about they as were, much. They were the stuff people grew up with that yeah. hadn't been like, hadn't resurfaced in a while. Um, so, yeah, all of a sudden, Star Wars was more alive than ever. Star Wars was creeping back into the consciousness. The special editions made it so. And then we ended up getting the Star Wars prequels. And here's where we see the influence of Kevin Smith and specifically this, Clerks really becoming a thing because this, if you'll this is recall, what I wanted to bring up. Uh, if you'll recall mm-hmm. in star Wars episode two attack of the clones, we meet a species called the Geonosians who are the Geonosians. The Geonosians are the independent contractors who built the death star. <laughs> They're bugs. 
they're bug creatures who built the Death Star, and we find out they are entirely on board with that shit. Although mm. they end up getting on the receiving end of the Empire's wrath. Although, although that that doesn't fall in line with uh, Rogue One, which changes all of that. The Genosians, 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 Genosians are are not mentioned in Rogue One. They're not mentioned, have, but, have by, you know, but by Rogue One, they'd already done most of the work. <laughs> okay, but uh, well, clear- but that, Rogue One takes place like right before they fire the damn thing. But the work they, is done. Th- they imply though that uh, it was Mads Mikkelsen who designed the Death he Star. He designed it, but the Geonosians were the ones who built it. They, and they built on it. it they like, built you know? it, but clearly they designed it because all of their stuff was also ball shaped. Like all the yeah. robots they made were also all like little Death Stars. So yeah, because they invented the sphere. <laughs> My point is they they had already established why it was sphere shaped. Look, cubes because... were taken by the Borg. What do you want? <laughs> anyway, um, but clearly the conversation had in Clerks was from uh, was the result of people who had watched Star Wars on home video far too many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Return of the Jedi came out, VHS was still really really new. Only really mm-hmm. rich people had it. It was kind yeah. of an obscurity at the time. It wasn't common in households yet. Mm-hmm. Would be pretty quickly. Um, it would be pretty by the, quickly. By the mid to late yeah. 80s, they'd be pretty ubiquitous, but indeed, they were still indeed. pretty pricey. But because of home video, now all of, all of a sudden we had uh, this generation of people, the age of the characters and clerks, watching these movies ad infinitum at home. They could watch it upwards of 50, 100 times if they wanted to, and really starting to focus in on the details. Sidebar. Hmm. Do you remember the first VHS your family rented? Or Betamax, um, if you had Betamax, I guess. But. We never had Betamax. I wanted it. Because I our, our the, the closest video store had a really great beta section, and they had movies in that section that they didn't have on VHS. Yeah. And we could not rent Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, because it was only on beta. <gasps> oh, that's brutal. <laughs> but do you remember your first VHS rental in your household? I don't remember the... I f- do. I don't remember the rental, because it was up to my, my mom at the time, but... Mm might have been it was probably like a disney animated film for us it was mr mom mr mom (laughs) that was the very i remember very distinctly we were so proud my dad was like waving uh, it in front of us like it was the golden ticket from willy wonka the chocolate factory (laughs) i I do remember uh the first few films that made it their way into our collection we had the wizard of oz yeah which i did watch the heck out of of course uh and then Somebody heard we got a VCR. They got us The Wizard of Oz and a few other like random films. So we had George Cukor's The Women. Mm. We had The Secret Garden and we had Man of La Mancha, That's a which weird is awful. Of That's a weird <laughs> Like Man of La Mancha is a good musical, but that film is awful. I, I've actually never seen the film. Yeah, okay. And I, I don't think I ever watched The Women. It's just I'm, I'm no. eight. I don't care. Uh, but uh, yeah, because of, of this VHS revolution, that sort of changed the way a lot of people watched movies. That yeah. and cable television were yeah. a big part of this. And... Now we have this cottage industry of people who are watching these movies so many times that they're becoming obsessives, they're memorizing them, mm-hmm. and they're starting to notice really small details and focusing on different parts of the movie that aren't necessarily very important to the plot. Yeah. Guess who else was doing that? George Lucas was doing that at the same time. He was listening to those people. He was re-watching his own movies over and over again, and all of a sudden the focus of Star Wars itself began to change as well. There was a lot more minutia. And again, even just, and George Lucas apparently has even discussed this. I think it's on the commentary track for Attack Mm -hmm. of the Clones about how he listened to that. Like, oh, you actually thought this out. There probably would have been independent contractors on the Death Star. Mm -hmm. And he reacted to the fans applying their own interpretation and their own logic. There is nothing inherently wrong with that. I want to make that abundantly Mm -hmm. clear. Especially in an ongoing narrative that's very natural. People listen to the fans. People listen to their audience. They pay attention. And they guide the story accordingly based on what works. That makes perfect sense. Mm. In the case of Star Wars, however, it very specifically led and very quickly led to a sense of entitlement. Yeah. And And this is where it got dangerous. Because this is where we started getting things like the documentary People vs. George Lucas. Mm. Where people who didn't like the prequels, myself included. I'm not in it or anything, but like, I didn't like it at the time. Still don't. Uh, they didn't just not like them. They started actively thinking Star Wars needs to be taken away from George Lucas. That George Lucas is the worst thing that ever happened well, to Star Wars, which well, is incredibly ironic this, and incredibly ridiculous and incredibly entitled because it implies that, listen, to an extent, the version of the movie that you saw, your original version, your mm-hmm. exact interpretation of it, your feeling that you got when you saw any movie for the first time, is yours. That's your moment. Mm. And that our f- does belong to you in that way. But the idea that George Lucas 
doesn't have the rights to his films is at best hubris and and, and not his. Yeah. Well, people, people became so obsessed with these movies that they created their own sub industry based on somebody else's movie. Mm. And I don't think it, this, it had happened at least not to that scale before. Like Star Trek had Star Trek conventions. Yeah. Uh, but this idea that a film quote belongs to its creator or its fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, became a big part of this conversation yeah. and how much the fans are allowed to contribute to that conversation or not. Yeah. And uh, we've seen and this go in weird directions. There's yeah. a video game called Mass Effect. And I think the third film in this, I, I could be getting the details wrong on this, but it was like a big trilogy and then it ended with an ending that apparently nobody liked. Okay. And rather than just going, oh, that's that too was bad, a, it ended bad. That was a bad. disappointing ending. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the fans demanded that they redo it and they did. Oh my God. Yeah. Here, here's the here's the truth that's, of the matter. That's that's a that's yeah. a line that had not been crossed that was crossed. When it comes to something like Star Wars, a big commercial enterprise, or Mass Effect, this gigantic money making video game franchise, we first of all we're using the word franchise. That's very telling. Yeah. Uh, the truth of the matter is, it doesn't belong to George Lucas, nor does it belong to the fans. It belongs to a company that is taking money from the fans. The fans are constantly tithing to Star Wars now. Mm-hmm. They're constantly buying new shit and devoting a lot of time, energy, and finance to making sure that the feeling they got never goes away. Yeah. It's almost like a drug fix after a while. Hmm. Uh, it's, it, I think a tithe is a more appropriate uh, analogy, though, that, that, that they constantly have to give money to the church, essentially, so they can stay in the same frenzied level of worship at all times. Yeah. And this idea that the company loves you mm. and that this is an affectionate relationship of some kind is complete bunk. Well, I want to make something clear here. Mm. I, I want to make, because we're talking about clerks had an actual tangible impact on star Wars. And indeed mm. Kevin Smith has cameos in the more recent star Wars trilogy. He was invited onto the set mm. uh, by JJ Abrams. He's got a connection to it directly, but clerks had, I think an impact on the way we discussed star Wars and the way that star Wars was treated as a cottage industry. Yeah. I'm think it's, I don't think Kevin Smith has addressed, has expressed that kind of entitlement at the very least, not to the degree we're discussing. Uh, nor do I think that this is uh, at all an intentional side project or even indeed all directly the result of clerks. This isn't like some kind of narrative where if it wasn't for clerks, none of this shit would have happened. Mm -hmm. It would have, but it was representative of what was going on and it helped popularize what was going on. And it's a significant piece Mm -hmm. in that puzzle. But what I think is fascinating is when you look at the characters and clerks who are having this conversation, Mm -hmm. they're young 20 somethings who lack ambition and drive, they're immature, they're foul-mouthed, they lash out. Mm. Maybe this isn't the target demo we should be desperately trying to mm. appeal. This is Maybe <laughs> this isn't necessarily like, and again, when you talk about like, oh, listen, uh, it was one of the most profitable and, and like successful movies of all time, The Last Jedi, but... The guys from Clerks didn't like it. Like the mm. like seriously, that audience well, the, the, the took problem, issue with it. So issue, that, uh, that that is seen as this target demo that needs yeah. to be appeased. We must please the characters from Clerks, and as a result, Rise of the Skywalker changed the Rise of Skywalker. Right. I, I always, always that. say that every I, time well, that's right? gonna fuck me on the Rise showdown. Of, Rise of the Skywalker. Things. But like seriously, that, these this is the 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 idea of the Star Wars fan that it needs to be appeased, mm. and, and they're the, the loudest. They're, the they're very they're very much on social media, and I'm telling you, maybe they fucking shouldn't be. Well, the the thing is, they people like that kind of built the internet. The internet, yeah. the three things made sure the internet was going to just sort of take hold. One of them was pornography. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The other two things were the X Files and Mystery Science Theater, cult pop hmm. media things. I would argue Star Trek belongs in uh, there as well, but and, fair and Star enough. Trek as well, but you know, I th- those two things Sci-fi were, TV. Let's just cut and, down to two things. Yeah, well, porn those, and sci-fi TV. Porn and sci-fi TV ensured that the internet kind of got a hold. And yeah. uh, the people who were going online and writing a lot about these things were guy, the guys from Clerks. A lot who, of them. Who wanted to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah. The very backbone of the entire internet 
is this shit? So it mm. kind of make so not only do they have the loudest voice, they're kind of the the founding fathers of a lot of this stuff. But so it's where th- we get stuff like "Ain't It Cool News" sort of yeah. came up out of that that uh, uh, prim- primordial slime of the internet. That's true. And like, and listen, there's the characters in Clerks. Mm. I think even the movie Clerks argues desperately need to grow up. Yeah, that's, that's the theme path- of the movie. Dante yeah. is pathetic. Randall is also pathetic, but unlike Dante, he's kind of comfortable where he is now. Mm. He's actually not a good person. He doesn't have his shit together. He's an enormous hypocrite, but he just doesn't expect anything more from his life. And that is the tragedy of Randall. Dante thinks he is owed more than he gets, but he will do nothing to fight for it. Yeah. He will change. He will do nothing to change his circumstances. Very weak willed person. An extremely weak willed, callow human being. Who buckles constantly. <laughs> good good uh, mall rats call back there. Thank you. <laughs> that was the only part I thought was complimentary. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he, he's, he's not uh, someone we should be looking up to. And he's not someone whose every thought we should be taking at face value. They're dumb kids. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of dumb kids out there. We were all dumb kids at one point. We all were thinking ridiculous things or had way too high and mighty an idea of ourselves or we didn't really understand our place in culture or society or as an ethical, moral human being. There was always a time, regardless of when it hit you, whether it hit you in your teens, your 20s, hopefully not much later than that, but it could happen. That's not the kind of person we should always be trying to appease. And in fact, uh, I feel like Kevin Smith tried to undo a lot of that. Kind of un, maybe unconsciously, because he really enjoyed all of the Star Wars stuff that was coming his way after that. Sure. He got to cast Mark Hamill in one of his movies. He was yeah. fine with it. He actually, um, uh, he, he referred to, I think he had one of the nicest uh, uh, sort of uh, reviews of, I think Entertainment Weekly invited him to write about the Star Wars prequels when they mm-hmm. were coming out. And he referred to them as his stories, much in the same way that his mom would talk about her daytime soap operas. Yeah. In which I am aware that the Star Wars movies have problems. I don't care right now because these are my stories and I'll watch them no matter what happens. That doesn't mean they're immune from criticism. That doesn't mean they're, they achieve perfection. It means I just like them. Damn it. And that was thoughtful. Hmm. That was thoughtful about not being particularly thoughtful at the moment. You (laughs) know, it's okay to just accept and just say, listen, I'm making a conscious choice to just enjoy this right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm shutting my brain off. What, I'm uh, aware that there are problems. Although Kevin Smith is is a very intelligent man and he speaks very eloquently, he also has you know a pretty crass sense of humor. The, very the, crass. The, the crass jokes he made in in the movies are the kinds of crass, crass jokes he makes with his friends. I'm sure they are. Um, I think even to this day he makes dirty mm. jokes. Who doesn't make dirty jokes? But um, he was never so self aware or so calculating an artist mm. that he really fully came to uh, maybe accept or acknowledge what he did. He, like mm. he said, he was never a voice of Generation X. That was never his ambition. Mm. Just That's just something that sort of is incidentally he was, hung He was in Generation X. And, he used his voice. That's and what happened. he never really meant for that whole substrata of Star Wars conversations to begin in the wake of this little tiny movie he made for $275,000. He made he, it for under $30,000. Miramax made it for under oh, excuse, well, excuse me. I just want to make that clear. This was a very, very cheap movie. The post-production and soundtrack cost more than the actual film. <laughs> the, the boom mic was a hockey stick. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was literally a pretty cheap production. Uh, so when it came time for him to try, kind of close the book on everything he had essentially let loose into the world, positive and negative, he made Clerks 2. A lot of people had accused uh, Kevin Smith at that point in his career of repeating himself too much, yeah. of not having a lot to say. You know what? He didn't. By his own admission, he didn't have a lot to say. Yeah. He was only telling stories about people his age going through stuff. And if he wanted, yeah. if he had a funny idea like Zach and Miri make a porno, he'd make that. Mm-hmm. But most of his films of, were yeah. about is about people going through convenience stores, people lazing their days away mm-hmm. at a mall, people figuring out their sexuality, people figuring out their religion and mm-hmm. how they what they believe once they extricate themselves from dot 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 dogma <laughs> Jane Silent Bob's right back it's just a silly thing about mm. like what it was like all of a sudden in this internet generation to all of a sudden have your every move 
yeah, dissected yeah, so, by people who maybe shouldn't. And indeed, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back end with Jay and Silent Bob beating up people having conversations about Jay and Silent Bob the way that Dante and Randall had about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, he, he really kind of resented a lot of it, I think. And when he, I think Clerks 2, though, is uh, at the end of Clerks 2, Dante and Randall go back to the convenience store. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the plot of Clerks too is that Dante and Randall are are now much older, mm-hmm. but they're still wasteoids. They haven't done much with their life, and now they're working at uh, uh like a movies. McDonald's, yeah, movies as it's yeah, saying. It's, it's a, like it's McDonald's, a fake like fast food, fast food joint, and they hate it. They know it's beneath them. Everybody knows it's beneath them. They have these conversations about popular culture, but their hearts really aren't in it anymore. And they realized that just as Kevin Smith was realizing. All of he, everything he had to say and everything he wanted to do um, could be seen as fully formed back at the start. Yeah. If these people had the wherewithal to just sort of sit where they knew they were happy mm-hmm. and uh, over the credits of Clerks 2, it's frustrated, incorporated, it's a good musical choice about and uh, they sort of pull out. They're finally back at the convenience store. Everything fades back to black and white is back to Clerks again. And you could say that, well, they've, they've just sort of come full circle, a Sisyphusian thing, where now they're just stuck at the same job that they always hated when they were in their 20s. Mm. But now they have so much more life and insight in them, they realize this is sort of our domain. This is our home. We're, this is where we're, we're happy. Yeah. We're happy here. We didn't want to go out into the world. We didn't mean to set all these ripples in motion. We're going to go back here. We're just going to hang out. And well, they're going to, well, they bought the place. They That's bought the, the yeah, they, they bought the they, place. They, they Jay controlled and Silent their Bob, environment. Yeah. But Jay and Silent Bob gave them a bunch of money yeah. that they made, made dealing drugs. Yeah. Remember how they were drug dealers? They made money. They, yeah. They made a lot of money. And it's like, <laughs> like, we'll give you a bunch of money, but we get to just sort of hang out in front of the convenience store. Like we always did when we were in our twenties. Like, fine, fine. Now we are masters of our domain. But this is uh, as far as we ever really felt like we needed to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that was Kevin Smith saying, that's kind of all I ever really wanted to say. Yeah. It was all in there. It's all in the, the I think the first three movies he made, Clerks, Mallrats, and Chasing Amy especially, are uh, very earnest about sort of a, a certain kind of white male malaise that was yeah. going on in the 1990s. It's very white and very male. I do yeah. think that's worth pointing out. He had, yeah. a very, he had a very, he had a limited point of view, but I think he was reasonably upfront about it. Yeah, he was, he was incredibly yeah. frank. It is a white male's point of view, but it, it's, it's yeah. incredibly honest. Uh, so I think uh, when he made Clerks 2, he was trying to put the kibosh on that type of Star Wars thinking, that we need to think of Star Wars, A, as you know conversations about Star Wars as a cottage industry, the idea that we need to overthink Star Wars all the time and live with it in our lives as mm-hmm. intensely as fans had come to do, uh, which is kind of ironic because he is one of those people. Yeah. But uh, he... he I think he's trying to uh, withdraw credit. He's not taking he, credit for doing any I, of that. I, I will say, I've interviewed Kevin Smith a couple of times. He was very nice to me. One time he actually referred to me as his doppelganger because we don't look dissimilar. Um, he's also uh, on my faction at the movie Trivia Schmodown. I have never talked to him about that. <laughs> I've talked to him like two, maybe three times, mm-hmm. all in a professional capacity as a movie interviewer and... Um, that's where the, mm-hmm. there's, there, we're not like friends. We don't, yeah. I don't know him. Um, but based on what I've been able to talk to him about, I actually am kind of impressed with the way that he has achieved a certain kind of Zen about his art. Um, I mentioned this before I interviewed him, uh, at Sundance when Yoga Hosers premiered. Mm. Yoga Hosers is a film that many consider one of, if not his very worst films. Personally, I kind of like it. It's a trifle, but it's fun. Um, it's a, there's the the it's, scene in which uh, well, uh, Tusk is his worst movie by by oh, a long please. shot. I think that's a fair <laughs> a fair assessment. Uh, but Yoga Hostess is actually kind of a spiritual successor to Clerks in some ways. It's about his daughter Harley Quinn Smith and Johnny Depp's daughter Lily Rose Depp. There, it turns out in real life they're good friends. They went to the same schools together. Um, he wrote a movie for them hmm. to star in where they work at a convenience store and turns out there's like an evil, like there's Nazi mad, cloning thing going a, a on mad, in the basement. There's a mad scientist in the basement of the convenience store making living 
sausage men. Yeah. Like little sausage-sized little, sausage little bratwurst guys. Nazis called Bratzies. Hmm. Um, and he ultimately... All, all played by Kevin Smith, by the way, and in little he, sausage costumes. And he, is, and he is planning to create a monster that will destroy all the critics in the world. And Kevin Smith has had an up-and-down relationship with critics over the years. Very, um, very famously reads, rereads and overreads his own reviews. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the movie, his daughter and Johnny Depp's daughter, the stars of the film, decide to go through all of their yoga martial arts prowess to defeat the monster and save all the critics. <laughs> and that was, and I interviewed him and he was just like, that was me reaching across the aisle to you guys. <laughs> And I thought that was so adorable. But the thing is, is that we talked about it and he was just like, I'm not with yoga hosers. He said he wasn't trying to do anything profound or meaningful. He wasn't working anything out Hmm. at this point. He's, he's done that. He's gone back to the quick stop. He's bought the quick stop. He's comfortable. He says with where he is. And yoga hosers was a movie he got to make with his kid. Yeah, he and just, that's, he's just and that's doing it. it for fun. There's for, that's nothing what, to say. I a, think it's in a way it's kind of pure, really. I just yeah. got to do this thing I wanted to do for fun. The things that make me laugh. I got to work with the people I like working with. And there's something just kind of, I mean, again, a lot of people didn't like that movie. I totally get it. It's a stupid movie, but I think he, <laughs> I think he knows it's stupid. But then when you compare I think that, stupidity is charming. When you compare that to, and Star Wars started off as a very pure thing as well. It's George mm-hmm. Lucas really just wanting to work in an unfettered way. And it got, went in the exact opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And it ended up getting so uh, picked apart by people. And he started listening to those other voices and started reacting to those other voices and ended up feeling like he was very underappreciated and felt pushed away from his own projects to the point that he sold them all to Disney. And now they are, I'm not saying people aren't approaching these things with artistic qualities. I think Ryan Johnson is saying interesting things with it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people who are trying to in Mandalorian. They're trying to do interesting things with star Wars, but I mean, if, it's, even, it's it's pretty corporate right now, and it's and not even, people doing the, it for fun. And even the popularity of a character like Boba Fett. I know the Ma- the Mandalorian isn't technically Boba Fett, but it, he, it kind he, of is. Um, basically, we've all, a lot of people always wanted a Boba Fett movie. We're not getting a Boba Fett movie. Mandalorian's as close as we're going to get. Yeah, so we have a, a Boba Fett clone. Yeah. A guy a clone. Not, not really a clone. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so all clones of Boba yeah. Fett. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, the popularity of the Boba Fett character uh, was something that came into being uh, during this midpoint between uh, Return of the Jedi and Attack of the Clones, this big sort of fan bubble that started to grow thanks I, to Kevin well, Smith. I, I think Empire Strikes Back is where it started. That's where Boba Fett was a badass. He's not a badass in Return of the Jedi. I know, Jedi. But, but people who really, really love the character mm-hmm. and get really obsessed with him, even though he has four lines of dialogue mm-hmm. and one of them is, ah, uh, the, the, is something that could only come from that watching and rewatching of those movies. I, I disagree, and that's only because the history of Boba Fett is really weird. Where he was like originally introduced in the holiday special, and they really pushed the action figure, saying this guy's going to be really important in the movies. And people are saying, getting really used to the idea of Boba Fett being totally fucking awesome. And then, and then only when they see the film, realizing he's not in it that much, but just clinging to it anyway because he is kind of a badass. (laughs) Just he has a cool looking helmet. Boba Fett is. I didn't know that about the toys. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a really good. Oh, it's a hit or miss show, but there's a show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, mm. and it's like half hour documentary, maybe they're all long, but there's little short documentaries about the history of toy lines. The one about Star Wars is really illuminating. <laughs> it's really well, fascinating. I know, I know the Star Wars toys is a big part of why it's Star Wars. Right, but there's of, more to it than just... Latched, latched were, into the culture. There's right. an interesting narrative there, and the story of the Boba Fett toys in there, too. Yeah, all, all of the, the sort of over-corporatization and, and you know, banking on a lot of nostalgia imagery uh, is all thanks to that Star Wars conversation in a yeah. big way. We wouldn't have a film like Rogue One or Solo, a Star Wars movie. If, I mean, Rogue uh, One is exactly coming out of the kind of conversation you'd have in Clerks where people are like, hey, how'd they get those Death Star plans? Yeah. Most people didn't give a shit. If that was important, George Lucas would have thought to put it in there. George Lucas didn't think that was important. That mm-hmm. was just shit that happened before the movie. And, you know and now all of a sudden we have to expand that because someone had the bright idea. And I get it. It's a good pitch. Is it, it? All right. It's, it's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. I don't think the movie came out very good. I also know that a lot of people love that movie. Okay. Mm. I, I, I don't, but okay. I can see why. I, I would assume the people who really like Rogue One are the kind of people who like go over blueprints 
and like a lot Maybe. of expanded universe stuff. I think a lot of people, people like get... that it has a different tone, like it's a bit more a severe than a lot of the other Star Wars movies. Feels more like a war film in a lot it's, of ways. It's, it's photographed in a wonderffully dreary sort of way. Actually, yeah, I, I, I love the photography in yeah. the movie a lot. Uh, but but yeah, I just hate it. <laughs> Overall, I don't. I hate I, it. You hate it. I think it doesn't work. I think the characters are underdeveloped, and it just leads to an inevitable kind of. No. obvious conclusion and I think the Darth Vader scene kind of ruins that I know it's cool in a vacuum but in context I think it hurts the franchise yeah uh, but yeah I think a lot of that a lot of what we're seeing in sort of the, the ultra corporate Star Wars uh, product that's being made by Disney mm-hmm. is is all fan reaction yeah. and that fan reaction is a culture that was begat mm-hmm. by conversations like the one we, ones we hear in clerics and, and even if you look at Finn from mm-hmm. uh, when we first meet him in Star Wars The Force Awakens we find out that remember in Clerks when Randall says that a typical stormtrooper doesn't know how to install a toilet main. Mm. We found out Finn was a plumber. Yeah. He was a stormtrooper yeah. who was in charge of the toilet mains. Oh. They saw the film, <laughs> it had an impact, and so here yeah, we the, are. The, this this intimacy between creators and the fan, the existing fans of like a, a gigantic property, mm. is now. Very, very chummy, and you can argue if, if that's good or that's bad. If you are one of those fans, you're probably very happy with this this arrangement. Mm. You can make demands and see the kinds of things you've always wanted to see. If you're the kind of person who's always wanted to see Hulk and Wolverine fight in live action, probably going to get that. If you uh, wanted the Snyder Cut, boom. That's another that's, example yeah, yeah. right there. People demanded the Snyder, it, they got yeah, it. The Snyder Cut. The, the, I hope you like it. I hope I like it. Fuck it, I don't The know. expensive reworking of Sonic the Hedgehog at yeah. the last minute. Yeah, that's another yeah. prime example right there. Yeah. That cost a lot. Thank God the movie made money or that that would, that would have been a bad project. But yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal. Sorry for the visual effects team who had to work overtime and then all got canned. Um, and. And if you saw Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, that well, you know what? That's 1994 right there. That's the kind of <laughs> that's the kind of action films we were watching in 1994. Yes. Somehow they made another one in yeah. 2019 or 28, whenever that movie came out. It was this year, wasn't it? Was it was this year. Holy shit! It's been a long year. <laughs> it feels like so long ago. It really does. It was that came, oh gosh, that movie came out in February. I know. I saw it too. I know. All those jokes about Olive Garden. <laughs> I was so surprised at Welcome how much product placement for Olive Garden there was. Olive Garden, when you're here, your family. Well, shit, I came here to get away from you people. Anyway, Clerks is, yeah. in many respects, you watch it today, it's a time capsule. It's a time capsule of a specific time hmm. through the perspective of a specific filmmaker with from a very specific background and experience. Hmm. But it's fascinating. It's very earnest. Sometimes it's very funny. And it's surprisingly smart, even while it is being incredibly, sometimes off-puttingly immature. Yeah. And you can see why this was such a lightning rod for independent cinema. How so many different filmmakers started paying attention to the way characters started to talk in independent movies. Mm. And trying to adapt their writing style to fit that. Because it was so exciting and new and relatable. And you can see the way that its conversations about popular culture started to spiral and affect everything that it touched and then help turn the culture around Star Wars and indeed all popular culture into what we have now. Mm. Wasn't the only thing, but it was a big part of it. And it's really fascinating. And that's why we really felt it needed to be the last episode of Star Wars, because whatever the future of Star Wars is, has as much to do with, if not specifically clerks, then the mentalities that went into Clerks and the types of people who latched onto mm-hmm. the ideas of Star Wars, like the characters in Clerks, uh, as anything else, really. Mm-hmm. It goes like George Lucas, like kind of Clerks, <laughs> and then other stuff at this point, because a lot of people aren't going back to the old stuff as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is it for episode zero. That's it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We can close the book on Star Wars, the ancient Jedi texts. (laughs) They're hardly page turners, are they? Page turners, they were not. I asked asked, uh, Frank Oz, if uh, Yoda didn't think that Jedi texts were page turners, what did Yoda like to read? And he Mm. said that stumped him. (laughs) I thought that was was a great question. That's a fun question. Um, But uh, in any case... John John Grisham, he liked. In any case, yeah. So we got 20 episodes of Star Wars Episode Zero, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, revisiting a lot of movies that we loved, watching a lot of movies for the very first time, uh, exposing chapters in Hollywood history. We got to re-examine the way that Star Wars works beautifully and the ways in that it sometimes fails us as mm. as it takes things from the past that are wonderful and sometimes adapts things from the past that are really backward kind of and ugly, gross yeah. sometimes. And how it has 
become not just an individual beautiful vision, but also a big corporate blob. I love Star Wars. Uh, I don't love all of Star Wars. I think there's a lot of good Star Wars out there. I think there's a lot of crap Star Wars out there. I think they're all, they all deserve equal time. I, I think Star Wars has mutated into something beyond its own control. Yeah. Uh, but there is something, when you go back to the 1977 film, something kind of shabby and passionate that is unavoidable. Yeah. Something that is actually is kind of legitimately glorious. I think Star Wars is, the original, listen, I, I tend to prefer Empire as a film, but when you look back at the historical significance, there are a handful of movies that without them, film history would be different. Mm. Not as many as you might think, but there's a few, maybe a dozen or two, that just, you remove Star Wars, the last 40 years of cinema is very different. Mm. Very different. It deserves its place in the film canon, for better and worse. Yeah. It's important. It's significant. You can see why people love it. You can see why it annoys people. You can see how why it became so popular, and you can see how that popularity sometimes wasn't always for the best. But it's important. It's in, I'm really glad we're able to dedicate a big, long podcast to this in our fashion. Focus not so much on the details and minutia of Star Wars, but its place in the grander canon. Yeah. Which is why we wanted to apply that same mentality to another pop culture phenomenon because star Wars is not the only important film out there. Yeah. It's not the only immensely popular film that has a ginormous fan base that focuses on the film that they like, but doesn't always revisit the stuff that came before it that made the film that they like what it is. Mm-hmm. So Whitney, mm-hmm. I would like you, this was, this was actually your idea. <laughs> the- I would like you to tell people what the next subject of the next series of episode zero is going to be. Uh, it's Space Jam. No, no! I'm kidding. It's not Space Jam. <laughs> We're not rewatching Space Jam ever. No. I hate Space Jam. Uh, <laughs> although, wouldn't it be great to prepare or just watch old Looney Tunes? Oh, God. We're going to be examining the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yay! Uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show on a film from somewhere in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's another 70s film. Uh, it's a... Um, bizarre queer musical that was inspired by a lot of old science fiction and horror movies uh, and became its own cult phenomenon very uh, very slowly and then very rapidly and then very hugely uh, over the, the course of many, many years uh, to the point where people were ena- wearing the costumes and enacting it on a weekly basis in theaters live as this big sort of cult phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, but as somebody who worked with the Rocky Horror Picture Show for many, many years, I know that a lot of the young... Uh, cast and uh, fans didn't really understand a lot of the references therein. Uh, didn't understand its legacy as a piece of queer cinema. Mm-hmm. Didn't really understand a lot of the stuff it was spoofing to get to where it was. Uh, didn't really understand a lot of the films that are directly name-checked in dialogue and in lyrics. And there's a lot. Yeah. Like, just that... We're actually going to have, oh, have a harder time cutting this one down in terms of, like, the number of episodes <laughs> yeah. than we did with Star Wars. Because mm. we could do, like, at least 40... For yeah. Rocky Horror. We probably won't. I mean, like, we probably won't watch Tarantula, which is name-checked, but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> eh, maybe we will. Maybe we will. <laughs> I don't know, but, we, yeah, for, so for Star Wars, we focus mostly on sci-fi, experimental cinema, uh, mm. action movies, samurai films, visual effects spectaculars. For Rocky Horror, uh, the next season, I guess, of <laughs> Episode Zero, we'll be focused more on classic horror Older sci-fi, mm. uh, and well, Flash Gordon is pretty old, but different kinds of sci-fi and uh, and queer cinema, mm. and that's a different perspective there, I think on film history, and I can't wait to go through it. Yeah, uh, Star Wars became a popular thing, took on popular things, and made them popular. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show has always been sort of a redheaded stepchild. Uh, even Fox didn't want a whole lot to do with it. No. They offered special dispensation to the theaters that would show it, so they could get prints kind of easily, but that. They didn't usually play that game so much. And uh, it explores a lot more culty underground uh, notions and pieces of cinema that were uh, not as widely celebrated as something like Star Wars or the things that led to Star Wars. Yeah. So uh, so episode zero is going to take a break or two while we get set up for Rocky Horror. But uh, stick around. Stick around the critically acclaimed network because we've got a bunch of other podcasts besides. 
Hmm. Uh, we're in the middle of Scary Tober over at Cancel Too Soon. We're talking about a bunch of uh, failed horror shows of fascinating note. Uh, critically acclaimed. I had personal stuff and it sucked. And w- hmm. that took a backseat for a bit. We're going to get back to that. Uh, we got We've Got Mail. We got a ton of other stuff. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a ton of exclusive content. Shows dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek, every single episode of the 1960s Batman, TV and movies that are supposed to be on Disney Plus but are not for some reason. They're just getting swept under the historical rug. Uh, podcast dedicated to every film ever nominated to Best Picture, commentary tracks, polls to help decide upcoming content, the whole shebang. It's a ton. And if you subscribe now, you get access to the back catalog, and it's pretty extensive now. So thank you, everybody, who is a patron, without whom this show and all of the shows that we make would be completely impossible. Uh, Thank you to everybody who subscribes, who spreads the word, uh, whoever has played an episode for somebody just to help get this voice out. We're really grateful to you. Mm. Your support to us, especially during this really tough year has meant the world to us and we're incredibly grateful to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we're on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And of course, if you want to talk to us about star Wars, ask us questions, recommend things, ask for recommendations, ask us questions about our lives, our career, the industry, anything at all, really even unrelated, silly stuff. You can always email us. Our email is letters at critically acclaimed.net. And we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've got mail. I think that's about it. That's about it. And we'll see you in, uh, maybe not next week, but in, in very soon for yes. the inaugural episode of uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Episode Zero. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.